The scripture reading for this morning, we have two scripture readings. The first is from the book of Acts, chapter 2, and that's our um, sort of theme text for this series that we're going through on the characteristics of the church in Jerusalem. Starting at Acts 2, verse 42. Um, and then the other passage that we'll be reading this morning is from 1 Corinthians 11, starting at verse 17. And that's on page 1,784. So I'll read from Acts chapter 2, and then we'll turn together to 1 Corinthians 11, starting at verse 17. As we approach God's word, let's come before him in prayer. O oh Lord our God, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you for the way that it guides us and teaches us for the way that it leads us throughout our worship of you. And Lord, we pray that as we come together this morning, that you would send your Holy Spirit to fill our hearts, to open our minds, to transform us evermore into the likeness of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Acts 2, starting at verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And from 1 Corinthians 11, starting at verse 17. Paul writes to the Corinthian church, In the following directives, I have no praise for you. For your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. 
For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. When we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for each other. If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home, so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give further directions. This is the word of the Lord. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Anglican theologian Leslie Newbegin once said that coming together in worship on Sunday is the most important thing that the Church of Jesus Christ does. And this is the topic that we turn to today in our ongoing series on the characteristics of the First Church. I'm very happy that we're talking about this on a day when we're also celebrating the Lord's Supper. In the book of Acts, Luke tells us that the early church was devoted to the breaking of bread. He tells us that they broke bread together in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And this is a really important description of early Christian worship in the Bible. And I think it's a really important thing because it also helps, us, helps to remind us that worship isn't just singing. So often we think of worship as just singing. And some more recent Christian traditions even set up their services this way. They have their services split into two parts, worship and teaching. And so in the first part of the worship service, they sing. And in the second part of the worship service, the pastor preaches. And the two don't mix at all, of course. But this division is not a traditional Christian division. Throughout the New Testament, the apostles and other leaders of the New Testament church emphasize that worship is much more than just singing. Preaching is worship. Prayer is worship. Celebrating the sacraments in worship. And so this passage from uh, the book of Acts offers us a helpful reminder in this way. We've chosen to focus our attention today on the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, since that's what we're celebrating today. And because it's the primary way that Luke here in Acts 2 talks about the worship of the early church. But we're going to use the Lord's Supper as a starting point for talking about all of our worship. Because the Lord's Supper is an important part of our worship. So we've chosen to look at this passage from Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, where Paul addresses divisions in the church that are playing out in their worship in problematic ways. And the problem in Corinth that Paul explains is that some members of the church are worshiping in a way that excludes and humiliates other members of the church. And this is a big problem, especially when it comes to the Lord's Supper, because the sacrament of communion is supposed to be a public expression of our unity in the body of Christ. But in Corinth, there are these divisions. And the biggest problem in Corinth, highlighted in their celebration of the Lord's Supper, is that the rich Christians are celebrating the Lord's Supper in a way that humiliates the poor members of the congregation. Paul explains in verse 21 that when you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else, or it could possibly be read without recognizing anybody else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. And commentators seem to agree that this hungry versus drunk thing is probably hyperbole on Paul's part. Um, but the point, the point is 
that the rich Christians are celebrating in a way that excludes or humiliates the poor Christians. And it could be that the rich Christians were starting their worship service and celebrating the Lord's Supper before the poor Christians got out of work because the poor Christians had to work for a living and the rich Christians didn't. Or it could be that the rich Christians were eating better food and drinking better wine than the poor Christians were when they celebrated the Lord's Supper. Or that the rich Christians were eating together in the dining room while the poor Christians had to stand out in the courtyard when they celebrated the Lord's Supper together. We're not exactly sure, but what is clear is that this division, this, this problem in the celebration of the Lord's Supper is a sociological issue, a division between the rich and the poor in the Corinthian church. One social group in the church is worshiping in a way that is humiliating or excluding another group in the church. And Paul asks them, don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? Certainly not. And Paul's answer to this problem is to do two things. First, he reminds them of the Christian tradition that has been passed down since the time of Jesus. For what I received from the Lord, I also passed on to you. And he encourages the Christians in Corinth to examine themselves, to recognize the body of Christ and to wait for each other or to recognize each other when they come together. The problem is that some Christians are worshiping in a way that humiliates other Christians. And the solution, Paul says, is to recognize the Christian tradition, to recognize the purpose of why we celebrate the Lord's Supper, and also to recognize the fullness of the body of Christ, to recognize and wait for each other in worship. This is a fascinating thing to me because it highlights several important things about Christian worship. The first thing that it highlights is that worship is God-focused, not self-focused. When we come together on Sundays, our purpose is to come to worship God. The purpose of Christian worship is not primarily to learn something new or to sing songs that we love or to have a good experience or to get caught up on how everybody else is doing or to get a pick-me-up to get us through the rest of the week. When we come together on Sunday, we come to worship God. Now, that doesn't mean that none of these other things happen. When we come together, we often have a good experience and we often learn something new and we often sing songs that we love and we often get caught up on the lives of our brothers and sisters in Christ and we often are inspired and encouraged in a way that helps us to get through the rest of the week. But the reason that we come together, the purpose of our gathering, is to worship God. And this is one of the things that Paul emphasizes here, especially in verses 23 and 24. When we come together as the body of Christ, we come together to worship God. Do this in remembrance of me. The words of Jesus remind the Corinthians and remind us of our purpose. We come together to worship God. There's a story that I've heard about Mary Holst, who's the chaplain at Calvin College. And the story goes that she was out camping with a few friends, and on Sunday, they went to visit a church because they were away from their home church. They were out of town. And it was okay. The singing wasn't great, and the sermon wasn't super, which is true of a lot of Christian churches around the world. But as she and her friends were driving back from the, camp, from the church, driving back to the campsite, one of her friends spoke up in the car and said, ah, I didn't really get anything out of that service. And Mary Holst turned to her and said, well, we weren't worshiping you. 
When we come together, we come to worship God. This is why our church emphasizes congregational singing. When the worship team comes up here to play, they're not putting on a performance for you. They are accompanying us as we all lift our songs of praise to God as the body of Christ. When the elders and pastors come up here to offer public prayers, they don't come up here to give you a rundown of what's going on in the church. They come up here to pray with you, to pray on behalf of you as we all lift our hearts to the King of Heaven and offer Him our hopes and our fears. When we share the bread and wine of the Lord's Supper, we aren't, we aren't just sharing food together or drinking drink together. We are all together receiving God's grace as the body of Christ. When we pass around the offering plate, we are not primarily fundraising for our ministries. We are all together offering the first fruits of our lives to the King of the earth. We come together to worship God. Worship is God-focused, not self-focused. The second thing that we learn from Paul's exhortation to the Corinthians and from Luke's description of the church in Jerusalem is that worship is communal, not individual. When we come together to worship God, we come together to worship God as the corporate body of Christ. Paul uses the word come together several times throughout this passage in Corinthians. When you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. When you come together, wait for each other. And we see this in Acts too. Every day they continued to meet together. All the believers were together. They broke bread in their homes and ate together. Paul and Luke both emphasize the communal nature of public Christian worship. And one of the important things in understanding the public nature of Christian worship is that we need to recognize that we are all together, all of us together, the body of Christ. We are not Christ, we are not the body of Christ on our own. We are not the body of Christ by ourselves. We are only together the body of Christ. And this is why Paul tells the Corinthians, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else, without recognizing anybody else. The problem in Corinth is that the Corinthian Christians are not recognizing the complete body of Christ when they celebrate the Lord's Supper. They are not waiting for each other. They are not acknowledging each other. They are celebrating communion in a way that excludes and humiliates certain members of the body of Christ. It's vital when we worship to recognize the fullness of the body of Christ. And I want to talk a little bit about children at the Lord's table. And I know that that might be a sensitive issue for some of you, and, but, but I think that this is a really important issue here. And I, think, and, and I want you to know that what I say here comes from my heart and is spoken out of love as we continue to challenge and to encourage you as the body of Christ. We in the Christian Reformed Church have been wrestling for really the past few decades with what it means to have our children with us in worship. We come from a long and troubled tradition of thinking that there has to be a certain level of cognitive development before people can participate in the sacrament of communion a tradition that says that you have to have a certain level of intelligence or be a certain, have a certain level of mental activity before you can examine yourself in a way that's appropriate before you come to the Lord's table. 
Early reformers interpreted this passage in 1 Corinthians 11 to mean that until people have the mental capacity to examine themselves, that they don't have what it takes to participate in communion. And in recent decades, we've realized that this is a rather exclusive and, and kind of an arrogant position that excludes and humiliates those among us who live with cognitive impairments and disabilities like autism, like Down syndrome, like Alzheimer's. And it's practically the opposite of what Paul is saying in this passage. Paul isn't telling the Corinthians to engage in a week of navel-gazing before they come to the Lord's table. Paul is telling the Corinthians to recognize that they are humiliating certain members of the body of Christ. And we've realized in our church that barring people with cognitive impairments from communion is wrong, and we've corrected that mistake. But with our children, we continue to be torn. We affirm that our children are members of the church. We affirm that our children are covered under the covenant promises of God. We affirm that God extends his grace to them in their baptism. We affirm that God works through them in his spirit and that they have faith. Jesus even says that their faith is exemplary. He tells us that we all have to have faith like a child. And yet, we don't recognize them as part of the body of Christ when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. When we celebrate the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, we exclude our children and we literally pass over them. How can they help but feel excluded? How can they help but feel humiliated? The current policy of Community Christian Reformed Church regarding children at the Lord's table is that there needs to be an age and ability appropriate profession of faith. And it's important for us to recognize and to follow and to obey the decisions of our leadership. But I, but I do have to ask, why do we put the burden of starting this conversation about faith on our children? Why do we put the burden of expressing interest in the sacrament onto our children? And what, do, what would an age and ability appropriate profession of faith look like for a six-year-old, for a three-year-old, for an infant? What does an age and ability appropriate profession of faith look like for a 90-year-old with dementia? Aren't the songs that we sing a profession of faith? Isn't reciting the Apostles' Creed together a profession of faith? Isn't even coming to church on Sunday in some ways a profession of faith? These are things that I encourage you to think about and that I encourage counsel and consistory to think about because we want to make sure that when we come together, we are recognizing the fullness of the body of Christ. Scripture commands us to recognize each other and to wait for each other when we come to the table of the Lord. And if a child is baptized, if a child is covered by God's covenant promises and is a member of the body of Christ, how can we recognize that when we come together in worship? How can we recognize that when we come together at the Lord's table? So kids, I'm talking to you now. It's important for you guys to talk with your parents about faith. It's important for you guys to talk with your parents about worship and about the Lord's Supper. So when you go home today, ask your parents. Tell your parents that you're, that you're a Christian. Tell your parents that you want to take the Lord's Supper. Tell your parents that you love Jesus and that you want to worship together with the, the whole Christian church because you are a Christian and God's Holy Spirit lives in you. And parents, when your kids ask you about issues of faith, and about worship, and about the sacraments. Encourage them. 
encourage them, support them, take them seriously, call your elder and tell your elder that your child wants to participate in communion. Tell your elder that your child wants to participate in the fullness of Christian worship. I look forward with all my heart to the day when the Lord's table at Community CRC is open to all baptized believers. Because when we bring our children to the Lord's table, when we bring our children to participate in the sacraments, we learn a very important truth. That compared to God, we are all infantile. We all have cognitive impairments. We all know nothing. We are all simple-minded and childish and silly. When we come together to the Lord's Supper, together, we recognize and see in its fullness what it means for God's grace to be poured out on us even though we don't deserve it, even though we haven't done anything to earn it. We come together to the Lord's table. Our worship is communal, not individual. And our practices need to reflect that. The third thing that we learn from Paul, and this will be the last thing that I talk about. The third thing that we learn from Paul is that worship is a proclamation of the gospel. Whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The Lord's Supper is a proclamation of God's saving work for us in Christ, who takes our sins on himself and pays the punishment for our sins. The Lord's Supper is a proclamation of God's forgiveness and grace extended to all people. And the same is true of our worship. Even when we don't celebrate the sacrament of the Lord's Supper on Sunday, an important part of our worship is the proclamation of the gospel, a proclamation of the good news. And this isn't just something that we do in the sermon either. The whole worship service is intended to be a proclamation of the gospel. God calls us together to worship Him and we respond with songs of praise. God calls us to confess our sins and we pray together a prayer of thanksgiving. God declares that He forgives our sins and we, oh, we pray a prayer of confession. Sorry, we pray a prayer of confession in response to God's call to confess our sins. God forgives our sins and we respond with thanksgiving. God speaks to us in His Word. He pours out His grace on us in baptism. He feeds us and nourishes our souls with the body and blood of the Lord at the Lord's table. And we respond by dedicating our lives to Him. God proclaims His kingship over all the earth and we respond by giving Him a part of the wealth that He has given to us. God blesses us and fills us with His Spirit and sends us out into the world to be the hands and feet of Christ and God in a world that does not know Him. When we come together in worship, God invites us to join in the big cosmic drama of salvation. God invites us to, to become a part of something that is much bigger than ourselves. God speaks and we respond. God calls and we answer. God gives and we receive His gifts. God teaches and we obey. God pours out His Spirit and we sing His praises. Throughout our worship, God invites us to join in, in this big story, this story that is so much bigger than ourselves. God invites us to join in something that is bigger than we are. He invites us to join the body of Christ, the body of our Lord. 
something that is cosmic, something that is universal. He invites us to come and to know that by His grace, we have become part of a body that is united by the blood of Christ. God invites us to come and to allow His Spirit to work through us in mighty ways to bring His salvation to the ends of the earth. So come. Come together and worship God. Come together as the body of Christ. Come and see the great work that God has done. Come and join the great work that God is doing. Come to the table that God has prepared and proclaim the Lord's death until He comes again. Come, taste and see that the Lord is good. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.